Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, your host with the always flexible co-hostess, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. We are the fastest growing podcast in Central Oregon. Thank you, listeners. Listeners tune in to find out how our community is adapting to living in our new normal. We are supported by Worthy Brewing, who live by their motto, Earth First, Beer Second. This week, we are chatting with Roger Lee, Chief Executive Officer for Economic Development for Central Oregon, or as most of us know it, EDCO. EDCO is a nonprofit dedicated to creating a diversified local economy. Uh, Roger graduated with a degree in international economics from the University of Washington. He's been the head of EDCO for 21 years. As CEO, he is responsible for economic development strategy in the Tri-County region, recruiting businesses from outside Central Oregon, helping develop industrial parks, and expanding commercial air service. He also worked as the director of the Baker City Economic Development Department. Roger, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, always an honor to be asked. Thank you. Uh, Well, let's just start. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and how does one like yourself get into economic development? Well, I, I guess I, I got a chance to see applied economics when I was uh, on exchange in Germany. It happened to be in 1989, and there was something that happened at that time. Uh, the wall <laughs> uh, between uh, uh, you know the country I was living in and the, you know, the whole eastern kind of eastern block there. So I got a chance to see a little bit of a uh, difference between a command economy and uh, more of a market economy. And the, the difference couldn't have been more stark. And I thought, well, how best to do that is to, in economic development. And so that's really kind of where I kind of got the bug for for this and uh, worked in an internship right out of uh, out of college, uh, university there um, in downtown Seattle in the tallest building um, on the West Coast uh, in the middle of uh, downtown Seattle and realized that I was not a city boy. <laughs> like Goldilocks, I went to a very small town in Eastern Oregon, uh, Baker City, as you mentioned. Maybe it was a little too small, so uh, Central Oregon's felt just right. How old were you when you were in uh, Germany at that time when the wall came down? Uh, when I first moved there, I was 19. I think I turned 20 by the time I left. Yeah, yeah pretty impressionable. Yeah, yeah. I was. I actually got to, you know, in an era of where we've got lots of demonstrations and in some cases riots, uh, I got to participate in what they call demonstrations um, in uh, yeah. light which is where it all got started. They would start with a church service uh, at, this, at, this, uh, you know, at a church right near where the kind of town square is. And then they rush around. There's like 120,000 people with uh, all the uh, Rus- Eastern, uh, Ger- East German and Russian uh, soldiers lined up with their automatic weapons. Uh, wow. And uh, nothing ever happened. I mean, it's just, a, it's amazing the kind of social change that happened in that country and economic change. And not a single, uh, you know, life sh- life lost, and all that. I've never, I've never heard that term, command economy. It's a pretty interesting way of putting it. Like you will build this now, you will sell this, and yeah, they they did their best to estimate what was needed and when and so forth. But you just had to go to a, any town, and uh, you know, and I've been to Russia several times as well uh, since. You, you go uh, anywhere and try to find something on the shelves and it's, it's it was usually not there. So <laughs> the allocation yeah. from above really wasn't working so well. <laughs> the commands were not uh, executed very well. I, yeah, I think everybody, all, all the initiative kind of lost its luster. You know? Right. 
Yeah. Well, you, 21 years at, uh, at EDCO, that's a, quite a commitment for this day and age when everybody moves around so much and it's becoming somewhat of a, a moment an oddity. How does, uh, you, how have you stayed so committed? Well, it could be that I'm just unemployable anywhere else. Um, so that, that might be- a, <laughs> You're unemployable outside. <laughs> yeah, that might be the right answer. Uh, but, uh, uh, no, I think doing this work, it's very difficult. I think the average tenure of someone in this profession um, is like three to five years. And in three years, you, you're just finally developing the contacts you need to, to do this work, I think, more efficiently and effectively. And so I'm a, I'm a big uh, preacher about, you know, some longevity in this role for uh, folks who are just entering it um, and sure. on our team as well. It's like when you stick with it, um, you really start to develop some returns. And I think the work, uh, say, that um, John Stark has done up in Redmond for Ready is a great example of that where, you know, people know how to get, th I mean, he knows how to get things done there and people know to um, how to find him and access the resources that uh, Ready has. So um, I'm a big believer in that and I've seen it kind of play out um, just not in our state, but in other parts of the country and, and the world actually. Sure. Well, let's, let's dive into some COVID uh, economy uh, talk. Let's start with things you've noted. Let's, let's say on the positive side for now, what, it, what are some of the things that you see uh, that have been, maybe a plus for how people are working through uh, COVID from the business perspective? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I feel like we're a little bit uh, lopsidedly blessed with having a group of companies that have been less, generally less impacted. That doesn't mean that 100% of them are in that boat, but, uh, you know, we have had uh, most of our, the thousand or so companies we work with across the Tri-County region, um, their major customers are somewhere else. And so they're not dependent upon the local economy. Um, some are national, some, you know, some of it's national, international, some of it's other customers in the state. It's weird when you have a pandemic and all those other places are being impacted at the same time. But I would say remarkably, most of our manufacturing and tech firms have uh, either kind of held their ground, the losses they've had are manageable, mm -hmm. or and um, it, it's kind of some of it's by sector, and sometimes in that sector, there are companies that are you know beating the trends as well. But I think we're we're in a small single digit uh, percentage of those thousand companies that are really uh, I think struggling today, which is not good for that that percentage of companies that are. But I think in general that that bodes well for our recovery. It bodes well for um, for those companies you know, probably coming out stronger than they were before um, to be able to kind of power us through um, a really solid recovery, a solid recovery like we had from the Great Recession. I know folks that at that time said, man, this place will never recover. And, um, you know, it was all doom and gloom. And my forecast at that time was to say, well, we will have some of the highest price increases for housing anywhere in the country as a result of what happened in the Great Recession because our, we lost so much value and yet all the fundamentals of this area didn't change. I mean, it was still a great place to, um, you know, to live, a great place to, for young families to move, to educate their kids. I think it speaks to that, you know, the fundamentals of this area has. It's really, you know, population growth has been a 
steady component of our kind of economic um, growth here. And uh, that certainly seems not to be a compromise at all with COVID. Let's, before we move into Zoom Town stuff, um, are there any, um, let's talk maybe a little bit about the negatives. What, what are some of the things that you think um, could have a real long-term impact uh, for the region and um, just other things you might be seeing in the short term? Yeah, I mean, there are sectors of our economy. And I think if you look back, uh, again, maybe a comparison to where we were 10, 12 years ago, we had a, we had probably almost three times the weighting of your construction employment that, that most communities, average communities would have. So you right. kind of in that four, four and a half percent range. And I think we were almost 11% um, at that time. So, you, you know, you, if that goes to 3%, there goes, you know, 8% employment rate immediately. And I think similarly, we've, we've been heavily weighted on um, tourism here. I think it represents about 17% uh, of our job base um, in the region. And it is a demand generator for the work that we do for helping uh, companies because a lot of those visitors, um, you know, say, man, this is a great place. How do I figure out how to get back there? Right. Move my business there, et cetera. So, um, you know, that visitor industry is, been among the hardest hit and you know I think will continue. It's amazing how, how quickly it's rebounded though. So I, I think there's gonna be some fallout in that industry and certainly as a component of that is kind of the restaurant and retail both. Um, I, I don't know that a lot of those businesses can weather what's still ahead in 2021. Um, people are not gonna return you know, immediately even if everybody has a vaccine. It's just, it's taken a long yeah. time like I think to kind of whip people into a, enough uh, fear uh, to not do things that they did before. And it won't just be immediate when they, before they come out. So um, that's something I think is, uh, will have a drag effect for us um, going into 21. At the same time, we're, we're very confident that 21's recovery year uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. So a little bit. I, I, I agree about the, the recovery, but I do, and, and maybe you've seen this too, I do, uh, I kind of get concerned about folks who, uh, the analogy I, I use is the person who's hiking with you, and as you're going up the mountain, they're like, oh, I think that's the top right there, and then you get to that one, you're like, oh, false summit, and, and you know, it's going to be, <laughs> my, my feeling is, is that, you know, the summit is, it's further off than people want to believe, and you know, there's been so much hype about this vaccine. And, you know, I continually talk to folks who are like, well, we're almost out of this thing. And, and, uh, and I, I want to, I, I can't discourage them. I want to, you know, give them that attaboy for their positivity, but um, yeah. it's just not what I'm seeing. Yeah, there's, uh, when we've kind of been talking about this for at least four, four months, I would say that, um, you know, the other foot's coming to fall. Um, really in this first six months of 21, where folks have maybe, we, we have a term for it when it comes to startups that maybe have received capital, but they've not been able to gain market uh, traction. Yeah, right. uh, they become zombies. And so they're maybe not out of business, but they're probably on their way to being out of business. And I think we probably have a, quite a number of businesses in the sectors I just mentioned that, that are zombies that uh, are just, you know, like, a little bit more capital from another round of federal stimulus is not enough um, to right. get through. 
And uh, so maybe like contractors in the Great Recession, I think we're going to have this major attrition of um, restaurants and retail, so, you know, storefronts and so forth, especially as people have said, well, I don't have to go to the storefront. I can just have it delivered right to my house for free. Right. Um, it's really forced some of those trends uh, to, you know, to greater uh, adoption than they had in the past. And so th those are all, I think, headwinds for, for businesses that haven't been able to figure out how to pivot um, who are, or who just aren't able to. Um, right. And, you know, some in-person is really an important part of that. I, I was a, a board member of a nonprofit that had that as our business model to train um, high school students and learning about business. And so you'd have business mentors. You mentioned uh, Brooks Resources, Mike Holler, and um, you know, spent a week of his life helping these uh, high school students as an advisor. OSU Cascades, where they hold them on university campuses. And unfortunately, after 13 years, and that's your business model, we just couldn't, the business or the uh, nonprofit couldn't survive. There was yeah. just no path out of there on a virtual kind of a platform. So there's going to be that attrition that happens out there. Um, and I don't know, I don't know that there's uh, enough money in the federal coffers, not to mention the state coffers to help keep those folks in business. Let's talk a little bit about the Zoomtown concept. It seems to come up on every show and that we have here. And, you know, there's some really positive things about it. It's probably contributed to real estate prices going up. Um, and probably it might create service jobs, but, um, you know, I'm wondering from your perspective, is there anything outside of, of those things that might be good? Do you see any companies like wanting to relocate to Bend um, because of this phenomenon of like a kind of a flexible workforce that's able to work from home? Yes, I think, uh, Laurel, that we, we've already experiencing some of that. In fact, uh, we just reported yesterday to our board of directors, we have, uh, you know, uh, regular board meetings and then quarterly we report back as far as what our results were. And our business is by its very nature lumpy. So a project you started uh, three and a half years ago might actually happen in this quarter um, or it may happen next quarter, five quarters from now. But we had our best quarter and since we've been tracking the information uh, since 1993, this fourth quarter of 2020, uh, remarkably enough. And that's really in terms of uh, projects that, that clo are closed and what we call done deals. And so relocations that happened um, and we don't count a relocation just when a company makes a public announcement and says, hey, we're moving to, we're moving to Bend. Um, it's when they actually move here. <laughs> when they lease space, when they hire employees, then that's when we count it. Um, it pretty, pretty good stats for Edco though, Roger, if you could just say that, uh, well, yeah. five people are telecommuting for here. So notch that as a business move to Bend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are businesses with physical locations uh, right. primarily. So back to the Zoom towns. Um, that's impacting their business because they'll have remote workers in other places that are, that are doing that. But, um, you know, almost 20 deals uh, in one quarter, which uh, I can go back to years um, in the organization's history where that was an annual number that was even less than that. So pretty remarkable. And, and I think one of the other things that's interesting about that is both a mix of tech and manufacturing, as well as a mix of, uh, uh, you know, the types of industries. So it's back to that diversification. 
So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about housing. Um, you've led a number of presentations about this topic, particularly the dearth of middle-class housing in Bend. And it seems to be an ongoing topic in local politics. I was wondering if you could just weigh in on, on your opinions about what our elected leaders are doing and if you think they're doing enough and other things that could be done. Great question. Um, I would say, and Ben in particular, uh, I really have to applaud the efforts of, of the city of Ben and its uh, leadership. I mean, to set a goal and say, hey, we want to see this many units um, on the ground, I think was pretty bold. I haven't seen too many uh, uh, cities do that in Oregon or other states to say, we have this goal, um, we're behind in housing, and let's see if we can push the boundaries. And the, I think for in Ben's case, that number of 3,000 units over a two-year period was about double what they were doing prior to. And I think it's interesting to see what we've seen. It's not our industry we play a whole lot in. We're dealing mostly with, you know, businesses in this what we call traded sector. But um, I th I, we saw it align processes inside the city to say, oh, well, this, this particular, you know, piece of land has these issues with entitlements or whatever. And how can we align those in our community development department and our building department? Um, and, and public works to, uh, to make that um, more viable in the marketplace. And so I applaud the effort of the city to set that as a goal and have departments kind of align underneath that. Um, I think some of the you know, criticisms the city's take, taken, um, and, and I, I feel like there's just more progress to be made more than, rather than throwing any stones, is that what's that mix of housing? How much of that is more on the middle income housing or affordable housing side? Um, you know, it's probably, it has been a mix. We've had more multifamily built, I think, in that two-year period than easily the decade before that, uh, maybe even longer. So it, it is a nice mix of, of different types of housing. Um, is it all the affordable or kind of uh, what we like to consider kind of workforce housing? You know, can the person that's serving you at a restaurant or doing your dry cleaning or, um, you know, teaching your kids, can they afford that house? That's another, uh, I think another question, and maybe that's the next stage for Ben on, as far as boxes they can try to check. And I'm a big fan of uh, trying to encourage the market to build what you want. Um, we have, I would say, very successful um, affordable housing entities in Oregon with comes to housing works and, and Habitat for Humanity. You know, some of the ones that come out of the home builders like First Story, I think they do great work, but you know, on their best day and their best year, they're only going to develop a, a small percentage of the housing that's going to be constructed here. And so how do you encourage folks to build a different product? Um, and I, I think it's really driven home by when you reveal like, well, what are some of the issues about around this? It's like, well, lot price has a lot to do with it. Uh, sure. Probably has as much to do with it as system development charges, et cetera. And if your average kind of all-in lot price is $200,000, it becomes very difficult to build anything affordable um, in that kind of a range, so. Yeah, I've become, I, I mean, short of uh, command housing, as we should call <laughs> it, maybe, I've just become a real skeptic that um, that Ben can, in the short, even to medium term, get a handle on what it means to have an asset like this where it's gorgeous. I mean, as much as you 
want to try to implement a lot of housing strategies, they seem like they're up against for your term headwinds of the, the every lot is super expensive. It's there's there's not a lot of capacity. We got way behind the eight ball and now we're just a very affluent town and it, it feels like we're headed towards Aspen. And I mean, I got to imagine in your conversations trying to get business to move here. I mean, I know we do it all the time in hiring. It's like, it's the conversation. How do you feel about living in Redmond? How do you feel about commuting? How do you, you know, for depending on the salary range we're talking about, how real is that for you? Oh, it's definitely real. Um, and it's not just, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a frontline worker that has no experience that's kind of working on the job and learning what they're, they're doing for the first time. Um, it's software engineers, it's even, it's, you know, higher paying jobs where folks are like, oh, wow, this is, I'm moving from a bigger city. Um, and depending on which, where that's at in the country, they could be um, having some sticker shock of moving here. Um, so that's, that's what was a concern for us back before we had this huge correction. In fact, that correction, although it created a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pain and agony out there financially, it was like we needed that correction. Right. Appreciation rates going up, you know, uh, double digit every year that compounds very quickly. And suddenly you're in a spot where those are the places we go to recruit. as <laughs> <laughs> right. They're struggling with housing prices. But, you know, it's a complicated issue and I, there are no easy answers, but I do know that, you know, the city of Bend pursued about a 10,000 acre expansion um, that was essentially slapped down by the state and said, oh, no, you're, you're dreaming. You go back to the drawing board and what they, what eventually was approved was something um, in that, uh, you know, 2,500 range. So a quarter of what was requested uh, to kind of try to get ahead of it a little bit, even though I think at that time, you know, we were way behind. Um, so you look at maybe other communities and it's, I think communities with a strong demand for, for in-migration or for housing and just in general um, are kind of perpetually behind the eight ball when it comes to this affordability issue on and land and, you know, and dealing with land price. Right. Look 35 miles away to Prineville, for example, lot prices are not a big deal there. You can still buy lots 35 minutes from Ben for, you know, 30 to $40,000. And uh, that's just kind of remarkable to me that that same piece of dirt is going to be, you know, in the 200, 250 range in Ben. Well, who would have who thought that um, Pineville would be a bedroom community for Bend or a place that people would commute from? I mean, certainly not in my, uh, my recent memory, but it, I, I hear about it. I mean, people float that to me um, frequently. Yeah, yeah. Hey, one of the things I, I wanted to throw out, and this is total speculation on my part, but is there a point at which when a community passes into this high affluence range, when you have a, um, you know, housing going upward of 600,000 for an average, that are there companies that start to go, oh, that's where I want to be? you know, that, that that becomes an asset. I mean, we always talk about it for those companies that are trying to find lower income workers. Um, but are, is there a category or a group out there that would find that more appealing as we move into those steps, that stratosphere? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think from my answer from doing this work for almost three decades is no. Yeah. 
no company that says, I'm going to look at your place because you have high housing costs. It's quite usually quite the opposite. It's like <laughs> to disqualify you because you have high housing costs. It, it hasn't stopped Manhattan. That's yeah. <laughs> or San Francisco. So it, it has hindered San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, that. And I think the business climate in California have both mm-hmm. very strong headwinds against keeping companies in that area. You know, one of our, we don't really don't necessarily peg ourselves as a peer to the Bay Area since it's just kind of this Disneyland when it comes to, you know, for startups and venture capital and kind of, you know, innovation and so forth. So Boulder is maybe, you know, more, yeah, that, even Austin isn't a great comparison anymore because it's gotten so big. Um, but let's say Boulder, which is not really a fair comparison because they're so close to Denver um, uh, and so forth. And they've, you know, probably had a 20 year head start on us, but maybe a place we can look to to learn from some things as well. You know, their, their um, average home price, I think now is uh, 900,000. Um, there are still companies uh, coming in there, but they're finding other, other communities in that front range that are new older. They may still have a presence there, but um, I think that's an example of where we've learned, like we've got to do something different than Boulder because they've essentially drawn a, you know, a line around the, uh, the community and said, there's really no new development happening. Um, and they did that, you know, many years before Oregon's land use system, uh, they did uniquely in the state of uh, uh, Colorado. And, uh, and so you got to kind of got to tear something down in order to build something. And, you know, we're not, that's not Oregon's land use system. It's, you know, concentric circles around urban centers, but uh, that system I think is really being tested right now, as far as the affordability factor for high demand places and low demand places, Oregon's land use system works great. Yeah. High demand places. I think it is, really kind of failing our state. Well, I, I do know that, um, I mean, that Zoom phenomenon, you hear the Southeast is just getting an incredible influx of folks. I know that a lot of people are migrating. A lot of personalities and, and folks in the media of, of Peg, Texas or Nashville or places like that for for movement, you've seen, I mean, it makes quite the headlines when someone like Oracle picks up and goes from California to Texas. You know, Texas is reaping a windfall from these from these prices. Yeah, there's, uh, uh, Texas is an interesting one because they, their land use, I mean, if you're in Houston, there isn't any land use. They kind of pride themselves as like, you can build a factory next to a, a neighborhood, yeah. <laughs> a pig farm. Uh, and it's like, you know, other places have uh, obviously not always involved the, the Houston model, but um, housing prices in, in, in that state remain reasonably affordable still, which is a little bit of a um, head scratcher for, for us. I think it must, must mean because there aren't any city boundaries. You can just build wherever you want. Maybe a little similar to my home state of Idaho, where you know if there's a highway there and you can access it and somehow we can get water and sewer there, you can probably build a neighborhood. Oh, we, I used to live in Boise. I, if there's a place that I would just fear for Bend, it is that <laughs> run from Boise to Ontario where land use is an afterthought in the desire yeah. to get some housing up. So, <laughs> and I think most Oregonians agree with you and that, yeah. you know, they, they're, they like how the org, the, the, um, 
we've developed and we, you know, we still have these open spaces between communities. I mean, it's much more, to go back to our initial conversation, it's much more like living in Germany. I mean, Germany is about the size of Oregon and Washington combined, but yet it has 80 million people. Huh. California is way bigger than that, you know, and they're um, not even at 40 yet. So um, it's worked, you know, it's worked pretty well in a country that's pretty land limited, but with a lot of people. And so it's just, you know, right now it's, um, it feels like it's kind of the Bible and it can't be revised um, at all, instead of maybe providing some flexibility in places where um, the land use system is not the only, but a contributing factor to this housing unaffordability. Yeah, it, it does feel like there's pressures right now to have that conversation. I mean, I, especially, I mean, if we're thinking about something that comes from the pandemic, I mean, certainly I, I don't feel like people in Bend, because they've been quarantined since March, can appreciate how many people have moved here and what it's going to look like when they all come out of their <clears throat> Zoom, Zoom homes and uh, hit yeah. the streets and pack the restaurants. And I mean, there'll be good problems to have, but I think the community's changed more than people can see visually. Yeah. And you can tell by the housing prices. It's not the town it was a year ago. We can't tell, but I, I just haven't seen, I don't, and I don't think it's from a lack of political will. I just don't hear any viable solutions coming from government that show me how you're going to bring the housing prices down, how you're going to open up affordable housing and um, stuff's floated. But I, I, like you said, there's got to be a deeper conversation somewhere. Yeah, some of it, it's really at the state level. But, you know, again, back to Ben's credit, um, I think of like the cottage code. I mean, you could do a cottage code zoning, which basically says your single family, standard single family home, which in Bend is meant, okay, if I've got a 5,000 square foot lot, I'm going to put a 2,500 or 3,000 square foot home on it. And that, that precipitates then a much higher, um, you know, selling price than if it's a, a 900 or 1,000 or 1,100 square foot home. And if you look at Ben's old housing stock, this is the kind of stuff I, I play with in you know, my free time um, of moving houses that are gonna get demoed and thrown in the landfill. And so I, like an idiot, pick them up and, uh, <laughs> you know, some infill lot and give them a new life, you know, and so forth. But they're rarely ever bigger than those, that kind of a footprint. Right. We're just not building much of that. And we haven't been building much of it for decades. And so you can't really fault the building community for, for wanting to maximize that. If you're paying that much for a lot and put a 900 square foot home on it, I don't think so. Right. If you have a, if you have a zoning and this isn't command uh, uh, real estate, I would say <laughs> it's like, what, do we, what, what kind of mix do we want to include with what we already have? And if you had um, like say new areas that are coming in to say, well, this has got a cottage uh, zone on it. Um, those cottages can be super attractive, but right. You know, maybe three times more affordable because maybe you can put three cottages on two lots and the smaller footprint um, makes it a lot more affordable, just like they were in a much different period of time, obviously, back when, you know, this was a mill town. So we're kind of running out of time here and to close this out, I was hoping you could give us a little rundown of some of the, you know, more exciting or notable companies that have come here or started over the last, you know, two to five years. You introduced me to Dutchie, which is a cannabis online sales platform. And 
we had talked about layered superfood. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about those guys or um, any other businesses you think would be interesting for our listeners to know about. Sure, sure. I, I, you've uh, mentioned two of the high flyers of our early stage companies. These are companies weren't even in existence here when they were founded here, you know, three, four years ago. And uh, they're both firms that are, I think, over, well, over 120 people now. One in Sis Little Town of Sisters, another one here in Bend with Dutchie. You know, in Dutchie, uh, I think there was a stat on Dutchie that they, um, for every, for, or 10% of all the online cannabis sales in the world are, are using their platform. So wow. that kind of market um, penetration precipitates capital and that capital grows a base of jobs here that helps support um, all those customers. So I think that's just a great example of, of how someone has figured out a market niche to be able to capitalize on. And, you know, Laird is in that kind of the same boat in the uh, in kind of especially food industry. Um, and, you know, they've really been able to grow in sisters. I think they're now in their fourth building. They just keep growing when they, as they can find land and buildings, they're occupying those. And uh, they're, you know, they're actually buying companies now too. They recently bought a PeeliNet company. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you have, again, that kind of a that kind of capital comes together. It, um, it winds up being able to fuel uh, growth and jobs here in our region. And right now, the portfolio of those types of companies, maybe a different stage, maybe not quite the, you know, the, the rocket ships that those have been. Um, we have uh, 96 companies we're working with that are really promising in the early stage um, uh, uh, arena. Everything from um, outdoor gear and apparel companies to specialty food companies, uh, tech, um, including video games to you know proprietary software. Um, those are all things that are kind of growing up here. We've really not seen, and you know, in this acute recession we've had a drop off of startups, which you'd think would be like people are like, holy smokes, this is not something I want to start a business, but they're starting them and uh, not in uh, small numbers. And then, I, you know, I, our recruitment efforts, which we kind of, you know, characterize as the, the move part of move, start, grow. Um, we're seeing a variety of companies, a lot of them from larger areas that say, I'm ready to get out. Uh, I've been, I've seen the light. I'm ready to get out of this bigger metro. And the vast majority of those companies are pretty small. So they're not, you know, big players, but I mean, we have one company right now that's looking at the region, it's a manufacturer and it's, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand square feet that they would build and, and hundreds of people they would employ. But the more, you know, kind of middle road is going to be in that, you know, 10 to 15 range uh, of businesses, which we think is a great fit for Ben. We have the space to kind of, uh, you know, accommodate those businesses. And it's a full range of uh, types of companies that are moving here as well. I'll maybe mention one that's, uh, it's a, um, uh, I, I think environmentally and kind of maybe what you're putting on your body conscious uh, uh, deodorant company called Smarty Fits. That's uh, <laughs> out of, uh, you know, aluminum free uh, um, deodorant that is just get ramping up and getting into production uh, uh, here in Bend. So that's, that's a recruitment here from, from this past year uh, as an example. Um, Roger, we're, we're running out of time, Yep. Okay. really appreciate you joining us and sharing Smarty Pits, especially. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or the banjo uh, company moving out of the, uh, you know, out of the Midwest to sisters, right. um, et cetera. Um, 
I'm going to follow up with you uh, a little more on that cottage code zoning. I, uh, I'm fascinated about these kind of things as uh, we continue to explode and look at infill and ADUs. But Roger, thanks for being on the Ben Don't Break podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks very much for the invitation.